and welcome to the course, Principles of Environmental Toxicology. My name is Professor Craig Muller, and I'm the instructor for this course. First off, I'd like to welcome all of the students that have enrolled in uh, Principles of Environmental Toxicology for this semester. Uh, this, I hope, will be a very exciting and fulfilling experience for you in terms of learning uh, many things about the sources, pathways, receptors, and controls of toxicants in the environment. One of the things, the themes I guess I can tell you about is that this course will address those four factors in detail. And in fact, it's going to be a recurring theme as we look at all of the different toxicants, all the different modalities of toxicology as it relates to the environment. Sources, pathways, receptors, and controls. Sometimes those can take on different definitions for the particular instance of toxicosis or the particular, particular exposure. For example, we can have physiological controls, but we also can have regulatory controls. Or, for instance, in hazardous waste management, we can have engineering controls. But those four themes will come through, and I'll try to address those as we do the course. Environmental toxicology, why would we want to study environmental toxicology? I think what we have to respect is that chemicals are a part of our lives. They're a daily part of what we eat, what we breathe, who we are, and what we are. And in fact, sometimes we have an irrational fear of chemicals. And I think the media serves its own purposes. All of the students can look back in terms of media representations of chemicals and chemistry and see that, in fact, there is always loaded terminology associated with things that are potentially toxic. For example, when was the last time that you read a newspaper article, perhaps about lead or mercury, and found that every time mercury was, was, was mentioned in the article or the presentation, it was toxic mercury, not potentially toxic. We're going to learn the difference between something in terms of its dose and response here and the practical aspects of applying risk assessment, risk management, and the challenge of risk communication. One of the things that you need to know in terms of modern society, it is very complex in terms of this relationship between chemistry and biology, but in fact we are probably one of the most protected societies ever, Okay, especially when you look back into ancient history. And many of the facts and that support in terms of public health representations of this actually do tell us that we are one of the healthiest societies ever. Are there risks? Yes. Are there real and clear and present dangers? Yes, there are. But we actually use the science of toxicology to help manage the risk versus the benefits of some of those aspects of our very, very complex lives. One of the things I like to do is actually refer to toxicology because it's a new field for many students as the interface between chemistry and biology. In this course, the biology that we take is human biology because it's a little bit more interesting, even though the, in the environment the target species might be amphibians, fish, birds, but in fact we're part of the greater ecosystem. And I think for most students that haven't taken anatomy and physiology, having a human focus, we can relate to our organs, our gastric upset we can then actually uh, extrapolate that information in terms of comparative toxicology to, for instance, aquatic toxicology and toxicology associated with exposure of chemicals in aquatic ecosystems and fish. 
This is going to be a new sort of a course experience for most students taking this uh, as formally enrolled students or if uh, you're just a student uh, look, taking this informally over the internet. One of the things that I like to tell uh, students is that there are different types of learners. I'm a different type of learner than some of my colleagues. You all know what works best for you, whether you're a last minute person, whether you like to read, whether you like to visualize, whether you like to hear people talk about that. We all have an adaptive sense of learning. Okay? What we've tried to do in a fairly advanced course website, an electronic delivery system, is give you a menu to learn in the way that is best for you. The next few weeks of this course is going to be an exploration in your own learning modalities. And so you'll find that, for, for instance, uh, uh, seeing videos, seeing live courses, uh, live lectures, uh, readings might be part of the different set of learning modalities that is best for you. In terms of uh, introducing each course, we'll do some learning objectives, but typically what we'll try and do is introduce uh, uh, the aspects of each uh, subject area in a core in a uh, the course lecture. Uh, what I try to do in this course is present uh, a, a coherent uh, stream of information. What I've tried to do is link the lectures uh, thematically so it's a programmed, uh, if, if, if you will, acquisition of knowledge. Uh, one lecture typically will build off of another lecture. What you'll find is early on in the semester that many of the earlier lectures are associated with general concepts, some of the jargon, the jargon of toxicology, if you will. Uh, and even uh, in one of our lectures, we'll do a case study or a, a special topic just to introduce a concept and use some of that jargon that you're going to actually use a little bit more or understand a little bit more uh, later. So you'll see a contextual use of some of the information. In terms of the students formally enrolled, there are published ad drop deadlines. Uh, pay attention to those. This may not be the course for you. Um, this course uh, has been rated as a fairly difficult course, but these sorts of subjective evaluations have more to do with the student's background, their comfort with the subject, their interest and passion for this subject. Um, make sure that you keep track of that. I'd hate to see students get penalized financially or otherwise in terms of missing critical deadlines. I wish all of those deadlines were before the first midterm. Uh, they're not uh, And uh, in terms of the drop deadline. And so you may get some, some harsh news in terms of your ability to compete, uh, to successfully uh, uh, withstand the assessment that we have, uh, which we call examinations. Now, in terms of degree of difficulty, what you'll find is this course uh, demands a fair amount of reading. Some of that is online reading. We use some electronic tutorials. We use uh, standard course text. Uh, this course goes through two textbooks. Uh, they're small textbooks. Uh, one is Essentials of Environmental Toxicology uh, by Use. Uh, the reason I use this book, and it's available, uh, downloadable as a PDF, I think it's about 40 bucks or so. Um, it's out of print, but it's an excellent primer on anatomy, physiology, and all things uh, toxic and toxicology from an introductory point of view. We go through that book, actually, in the first 10 lectures. Uh, we then transfer over to another book, Environmental Chemistry and Toxicology, uh, which is still available, still is in print and available for purchase. I encourage you to 
contact the local bookstores and the online retailers in terms of trying to locate either new or used copies. And there still are used copies floating around of the used textbook, uh, no matter what uh, is your preference there. Um, the workload here is a little bit high because we have to introduce a tremendously broad subject area. But this is a very comprehensive course, and I tend to reward the students that make it to the end. What does that mean? It means that a substantial amount of drops happen in this class, and uh, it's people that just can't keep pace with it. I will warn you that we have programmed into this course the ability to, uh, the encouragement, I guess, uh, via grades and workload for students to actually do this on a routine and regular basis. Now, I know students, and there's many here that are mid-career professionals uh, taking this over the Internet, have busy and complicated lives, and I can't predict, and you can't predict necessarily what the future holds. I am very tolerant of your schedules and the complexity of your lives. If you have a crisis, if you have a challenge, uh, if you can't do an exam in a, in a certain amount of time uh, or homework, uh, contact me. I tend to be very liberal in my policies. The end product is fairness to all other students, but also an encouragement for you to take on this course and to learn the course materials, okay? So when I say, for example, the homework is due three days after, I don't put a penalty in there, but I do want you to get it done because if you let these homeworks, you let these uh, uh, assignments build up on you, you'll get too far behind, and it will become a tremendous, a monumental task to recatch up with potentially uh, hundred pages, hundreds of pages of, of reading if you let it go for a couple of weeks. Okay, so try to make yourself disciplined enough to address the course materials as they're assigned. Each lecture, and there's two per week, is supported by a, a, a fairly well developed module of information, links, online readings, and offline readings. Okay. For those of you that find a particular lecture or module interesting, I've put some suggestions for further reading, uh, some links. And at this point in time, most students are masters of the web. You can figure out uh, via just surfing around some additional information. You can also support yourself in terms of if you need more background information or you want more advanced information just by surfing around. And you know, in terms of your critical thinking, how to access websites that are, you know, have uh, good academic uh, uh, lineage, uh, good resources, and not something that's fluff science or uh, media science or garbage science that might be out on the internet. Um, the assessment in this course uh, is different if you're taking it for undergraduate credit or for graduate credit. Uh, all students in the course will be responsible for uh, turning in the homework that is associated with each module. These are typically pretty quick, and I'll tell you the philosophy behind that. I ask five simple questions, typically multiple choice or short, or short answers. They're more or less just to make sure that you have access to the reading material. It really, they aren't particularly challenging. Sometimes I do a poor job of wording a question, uh, and, but, uh, and there isn't necessarily trickery, but I will tell you that sometimes I will encourage careful reading. When you're phrasing a multiple choice question, in a certain sense, you have very limited options to challenge if you really know and understand it. Although they're relatively quick, carefully read the questions. You have one shot. You can't go back for it. So homework's uh, count and the disposition of uh, all the accumulated totals of uh, the assessment tools 
is actually listed on the course syllabus. The course syllabus is uh, available for download as a PDF. It's on the lectures page of the course website. Okay. Now, in terms of each one of the modules that we deal with uh, for the subjects, uh, note that because we do this live uh, in front of an audience and we uh, make it available for archive, sometimes the night before I look at a lecture uh, that I've prepared and say, you know, something happened last week and I want to update or modify this. And so I reserve the right to change uh, some lecture notes. Typically, it's a minor change uh, the night before. Uh, just be aware of that if you're looking at the class notes and there's a couple of slides that are out of cue. Okay? I try to do a good job because I have to prepare for lecture as well. And something may have happened. I may have read something. And uh, I want to make you guys aware of it as well. We have, uh, for all students, uh, those two homeworks uh, per week. Some of the lectures you'll find uh, as you go to the, the homework link, there won't be a homework there. And I typically start light-loading you towards the end of the semester because there's a ramp-up in terms of the challenges and the assessments uh, and the projects that are due in this course towards the end of the semester. And so uh, I, I, I show mercy, for, for instance, and, and uh, know that you're very busy in getting your student projects together and whatnot. So uh, uh, we don't have as many homeworks towards the end of the semester. So anticipate that in terms of your planning. All students, undergraduate and graduate credit students, will be doing a case study in this, pro in this course. This is the most important assessment tool uh, in this course. This is a synthetic document. And what I mean by that is you synthesize the course information into a full-blown case study on a particular chemical or a group of chemicals that's applied to a particular or specific site or application. And so I don't want to see a case study that's the history of lead toxicosis. That's a topic. That's not a case study. But if you find an incident of uh, lead toxicosis in a particular situation, like lead toxicosis epidemiology associated with old uh, house paint, that may be reasonable. I do ask that because of the importance of this in terms of your education, grasping the course information, that uh, in about a month or so, you prepare a one-page outline and submit it to me. And I um, typically will take a look at this. If I don't have an issue, you may not even hear from me. But I want you to start thinking about this because it is an important demonstration that you have mastered what you need to know. I will also tell you that people who do toxicology, especially environmental toxicology, do case studies and environmental risk assessments all the time. And so this gets you kind of in the mode of using the available current information to synthesize a risk analysis document. Okay. Uh, the uh, exams in the course that also all students, we have two midterm exams. They are fully take-home exams. Everything in this course is electronic and electronic delivery. I encourage you to be very comfortable in how to use electronic tools, uh, although we don't require anything beyond a simple Excel spreadsheet and a word processor such as Microsoft Word. You might find it uh, useful in terms of conduct of examinations to use some of the drawing tools in Microsoft Word. Uh, I have some uh, tutorials online if you've never done that. But if you have other drawing tools that you know will incorporate into uh, Microsoft Word documents or PDFs, I invite you to be the artist that you are. Uh, I don't grade off for art. I might ask you for uh, diagrams of certain things in your exams. Uh, there are no extra points if you do fancy art versus uh, caveman, cavewoman art. Okay? 
So just be comfortable in, in, in demonstrating that you know and understand this. Uh, like I said, the exams are take home. I typically on the exam day will post it by uh, course time. Although I will tell you, I try to be attentive. I, although I uh, would project that these are four to six hour exams, um, sometimes students, because they're take home, will do eight hours, 12 hours. And I've even had students tell me they work 24 hours. Um, I usually let students uh, have access to these exams uh, for at least 24 hours, uh, but sometimes I let I give it out early or late, depending upon, uh, and uh, allow for uh, 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 as much as three days worth of conduct. Okay, um, they do require a fair amount of uh, research and synthesis of knowledge, uh, so it is a take-home exam after all. Okay. The exams, uh, including the final exam, there's two midterms and one final, typically are, well, the first uh, two midterms are uh, half multiple choice and half problems. So it will be 25 multiple choice questions. Uh, these are not simple questions necessarily. They require you to know and understand the material. And a lot of it, you can just look it up. And so you have to demonstrate. Um, but again, I encourage careful reading because of the way I phrase questions. It's not trying to trick you. I'm just trying to make sure that you understand that precision of writing is important, as important as precision of reading. Okay. Uh, and then the problem sets, usually there's uh, four problems, uh, sometimes five. Uh, and these are fairly large scale synthesis type questions. You're going to require a lot of calculations. Uh, uh, writing research uh, uh, analysis. I encourage you to use the web to use the resources to come up with uh, a solution. There's a fair amount of subjective grading in associating with this, these problems. I'm trying to get you to demonstrate you know what's going on. Okay, and so it's not a simple sort of set of answers, uh, but you may have to, for instance, use a piece of downloadable software to calculate a risk assessment number or something like that. And you'll get some instructions on how to do this. The final, uh, because we have a lot of work that's due towards the end of the semester, uh, I make the final a little bit uh, more straightforward. It is just uh, multiple choice questions. And so it's a bit quicker and faster. Pretty much the, the students that survive at that point in time deserve a little bit of a reward, so it's not problem oriented. It's not problem oriented because you will have towards the end of the semester uh, a case study due. The case studies I talk about, I think I, I limit uh, maximum number of pages to 2025. All of this information is on the course website. Uh, I want this to be an extremely well-prepared paper. I do not want to see grammatical errors. I will not correct grammatical errors. But uh, because all grading on these sorts of things is subjective, you want to put your best foot forward. If I have to navigate broken English, uh, it just sets me up in terms of that you really didn't put the time materials into this. I want to see this to be very highly referenced. And I don't mean just website referenced. This is a research paper. Okay, So I want you going to the original research and doing formal uh, citations. I don't script how you need to citate. But at this point in your careers, you should know how to write and document a formal research paper. Do not plagiarize. Part of this course, uh, all students are required to uh, by taking this course to adhere to the course honor code. Okay, There's a downloadable version. There's two elements to it. Essentially, it says don't plagiarize and that this is, should be your own work. This is not a team project. There are no team projects in this. Um, let me tell you that when you cheat, 
you cheat yourself. Okay? Uh, there is no control other than your own personal honor on the potential uh, cheating in this course. Uh, when analyzed or asked uh, university students, about 76% of them say they have cheated at some point in time in their careers. So it is proliferative out there. And uh, I would just say that uh, you will get from this course as much as you put into it. If you cheat to get a grade, you cheat yourself. You become that much less a master of a very important subject matter, which I think is going to be important to many students' careers in this course. So take it to heart. Also know that uh, if you do plagiarize, I tend to penalize you. And it is extremely easy these days to paste and uh, to, to cut and paste uh, documents, phrases uh, out of the internet, out of incredible documents. If you're a non-native English speaker, there may be some uh, more encouragement or more susceptibility to to cheat in this course. Please don't do it. Um, note that I have caught and will continue to catch students that will snag a paragraph from a technical document on the web because if in reading your work, I suspect this is plagiarized material and I know from years and years of teaching the skills, knowledge, and abilities at this level of, uh, of uh, your education. If I suspect it, I simply will do this and you can try all this. Uh, if I take that sentence and put it into a Google search engine, it will show me the document you took it out of. So most students think that they're very clever. In fact, search engines are powerful in reverse engineering cheating as, as powerful as they are in terms of access to resources. So enough said, uh, please don't cheat. Uh, so all students will do this case study. So put a lot of effort and focus into it. It's a significant part of your grade. Students that are taking this course for graduate credit will also do a book review. I have them do a wholly different text, and I do have some suggestions on the course website. I want the, this particular book to be a book that is science in the public arena. And this is really important in terms of risk communication. And there are many books that come out, uh, sometimes very good, very technically accurate, well-researched books, but there are others uh, less so. Uh, they're inflammatory, uh, the risk communication is the sky is falling. Uh, and what I want the graduate students to do is to find one of those books, and a book that is appropriate to your discipline, uh, your career path, and uh, sometimes these books can be uh, relatively small books, 150 pages. Uh, some students have taken on 400 page books. The critical review is about a dozen pages or so, uh, and typically I at least uh, skim the book uh, that you are critiquing, and I read other online critiques and published critiques of this particular book to find out uh, where you're at, uh, whether or not you've researched this. But I want this to be a critical review, a critical analysis, not just a book report. Okay? So I want you to examine the major theses, and I want, to count, want you to counter those arguments, the major theses, with independent uh, citations. So if the author says X and you think that Y is more uh, a significant representation of this thesis, I want you to back that up with uh, peer-reviewed citations. And that's really important, peer-reviewed citation. Um, so uh, this course, we have uh, it's a, a very web-enabled, uh, web-accessible uh, course. There's a tremendous amount of uh, learning materials for you on there. Um, uh, some of them are printable. Some of them, I, uh, I think, uh, you should just adopt the ethic of uh, the stuff is out there. 
unless you need it for for daily documentation, don't print it just to access it online and depending upon your accessibility of resources. I've got the course website on this particular page. Now, in terms of uh, undertaking a, uh, uh, an analysis of environmental toxicology, it's probably not a bad idea to understand uh, what environmental toxicology is. We'll work with the definition that it's the study of the nature, properties, effects, and detection of toxic substances in the environment and in any environmentally exposed species, including humans. Okay? I like to take a human focus once again because I think it's just more interesting because we know our bodies fairly well. We'll learn a little bit about the interaction of our bodies and the chemical world. Uh, in terms of the base definition of toxicology, it is this interaction of chemicals and the adverse effects of chemicals on organisms. I think uh, all students need to examine why they're taking this course. Uh, environmental toxicology is a subdiscipline within toxicology, and toxicology, the study of things that are toxic. Um, is it perhaps uh, a, uh, a minor discipline in terms of uh, referenced against uh, uh, major disciplines like biology, uh, perhaps microbiology and chemistry. Uh, it's not a bad uh, thing in terms of uh, students that are doing anything associated with the environment to learn about uh, man's relationship uh, to the environment. And hopefully this course gives you some uh, background about that. Now, when we talk about environmental science, uh, some students come at it in terms of man's relationship to man's impact on the environment. In fact, I take a broader view that we're part of a broader ecology as organisms uh, in, in uh, the five kingdoms. And so our relationship is not necessarily a synthetic relationship in terms of synthetic chemicals, but uh, any of you that have ever had an interaction with poison ivy know that, in fact, poison ivy is a natural toxicant. And so we're not going to necessarily uh, create a subjective terminology that things synthetic are bad and things that are natural are, uh, are good. What we're going to do is try to deal with them as chemicals, natural or synthetic, that may have a toxic impact. I like to uh, go back in history. This is just an introductory lecture and uh, give you some representations uh, of uh, man's relationship uh, to the environment. This is one quote. It's a very interesting one. And, uh, apologies for, for reading this, but I think uh, it's worth uh, a little bit of your attention. On earth creatures shall be seen who are constantly killing one another. Their wickedness shall be limitless. Their violence shall destroy the earth's vast forests. And even after they have been sated, they shall in no wise suspend their desire to spread carnage, tribulations, and banishment among all living beings. Their overreaching pride shall impel them to lift themselves toward heaven. Nothing shall remain on earth or under the earth or in the water that shall not be hunted down and slain, and what is in one country dragged away into another. And their bodies shall become the tomb and the thoroughfare for all living things they have ruined. Sounds like the nightly news. Um, the fertile earth, following the law of growth, will eventually lose the water hidden in her breast. And this water, passing through the cold and rarefied air, will be forced to end in the element of fire. Then the surface of the earth will be burned, and that will be the end of all terrestrial nature. Uh, it sounds, again, you know, like uh, an extremely pessimistic view of uh, humans, uh, man and, and uh, uh, their relationship uh, to the environment. Uh, we are, in fact, uh, extraordinarily destructive. Uh, you can tell, perhaps, by the uh, the 
tone of the the English and uh, the picture here that this is not necessarily a recent observation, but is the recent observation in 1452 to 1519 of Leonardo da Vinci. Not necessarily one of the most pessimistic beings, but one of probably the most uh, productive uh, thinkers uh, and uh, uh, engineers and artisans uh, ever to walk the planet. So in fact, uh, the, the relationship of man to nature uh, has always uh, been open to question. Uh, the ancient Greeks were perhaps the first to uh, 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 see that, uh, in fact, man can be destructive, that we need to have a relationship, uh, a productive relationship and not destructive relationship uh, with the environment. Uh, farming uh, practices, uh, even in ancient Greece, 2,500 years ago, were observed to uh, allow for erosion and siltation of, of uh, estuaries. Uh, some of the forests that were cut down for firewood uh, were seen as being particularly destructive. And so uh, even the ancients knew that this relationship with nature uh, that mankind has is a very uh, tenuous one in terms of sustainable practice versus non-sustainable practice. Uh, it sometimes also helps me because I spent last year in a Fulbright in Greece to walk in the footsteps of Aristotle on the Green Island where in fact he uh, got some of the uh, input for one of his treatises on uh, animal, animals and uh, uh, biology. In this course, what uh, I will be a strong advocate of is science and the role of science in the discussion of things that are toxic. Uh, you will see many and have seen uh, many loaded representations of uh, risk in, in the media. Uh, what I'm going to try to do in this course is empower you with uh, uh, knowledge about things toxic and toxicology and the challenges of risk assessment and risk management and risk communication. Uh, these are very, very difficult things to do. Uh, it's very difficult in terms of the relationship of experts in the general public. What we find quite often is that experts are sometimes discounted or dismissed by the public in favor of personal views. What we also find in terms of risk is there is an emotional attachment to risk and especially involuntary risk. Think about it in your own life. The things that you worry about the most are probably the things that you control the least. Quality of air, quality of water, quality of food in terms of potential toxic insult. But in fact, those behaviors, practices, perhaps even hobbies, maybe even addictions that you choose to do, that you have a voluntary control over, such as, for instance, uh, parachute jumping, riding a motorcycle, smoking cigarettes, eating junk food, all of those kind of wonderful, risky things that we might do. When we have choice, we devalue the risk. And in fact, uh, sociologists and psychologists that have studied this have put the number of a thousand-fold differential in terms of risk that we assume ourselves we have a voluntary aspect to, to the concern level of involuntary risk, those that we have very limited or no control of. Nuclear power and the risk of nuclear power and nuclear annihilation is something because we have very limited control over, we view as a very high level risk. On, uh, and this is uh, in difference to uh, other things perhaps that we have a choice in. What we'll do in terms of taking an analysis of this, especially toxic risk, is use science and the science of risk assessment. 
it's good to understand what this is. I like this quote from B.F. Skinner. For those of you who have taken high school biology, remember B.F. Skinner and his rat mazes, a social, I mean, a uh, biological uh, uh, behavior scientist. 1953, Skinner wrote, science is first of all a set of attitudes. It is a disposition to deal with the facts rather than what someone has said about them. Science is a willingness to accept facts even when they are opposed to wishes. The opposite of wishful thinking is intellectual honesty. Scientists have simply found that being honest with oneself and as uh, well as others is essential to progress. Experiments do not always come out as one expects, but the facts must stand and the expectations fall. The subject matter, not the scientist, knows best. What we will try to do is give you a respect for accessing peer-reviewed science and how peer-reviewed science is used in risk assessment and risk communication. It is sometimes not easy, especially when uh, inflammatory words uh, sometimes sell newspapers and the public gets a tremendous amount of their information from newsprint, from television. Uh, uh, for example, uh, next time you critically uh, review, for instance, a newspaper article or a picture or a photo of something that is a representation of environmental toxicosis or some sort of thing toxic, look at, for instance, a picture of the spill or the dead fish and say, what is actually the scope of that? Are the, is, is the media focusing on the 10 meter by 10 meter contaminated area and projecting or letting you extrapolate that this whole water body is contaminated. Uh, how are they using representation? Be critical thinkers. It is not to diminish the potential impact, but to note that there are forces out there that will try to manipulate fear as opposed to scientific evaluation of what the real risk is in these kind of situations. And this is where I invite students to become better at accessing we only have so many resources, not only in this country, but in our lives and lifespans, to deal with minimizing risk. Life is not a zero risk equation. Sometimes it gets marketed that we can somehow avoid all risk. We take a risk every time we wake up in the morning and cry and cross the street. There are tremendous amounts of risks in our lives. We have only so much national treasure to actually minimize and mitigate risk. What is the clear and present danger in terms of exposure to chemicals versus something that perhaps is magnified beyond what we as a society ought to be applying in terms of our care concern and our national treasures and international treasures, if you will, versus, for instance, uh, education in the arts, uh, development of better school systems, all the other potential expenditures. This is the contract that we have in a governed society with our governments. The course of study in terms of what we're going to be doing here in environmental toxicology, we'll do a historical review, and actually this is mostly by readings in your textbooks. We're not going to really do lectures about the history of toxicology. I will give you some links and some information in terms of some websites, and it's perhaps uh, 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 important for you just to Google around and, and find some websites that deal with some of the more interesting and colorful episodes uh, in human history about uh, the interaction of chemistry and biology. Uh, you'll probably now uh, take a look at old movies uh, and uh, historical occurrences of poisoning with a different light uh, once you've taken this course and you understand uh, dose and response. 
This course, we do take a human perspective, and uh, this human perspective uh, is, I think, just a little bit more interesting for most students because, hey, after all, we're humans. Uh, there is a comparative toxicology aspect to that. Um, although much of toxicology is done in rodent studies, uh, it's just, I think, a little bit less interesting to talk about rat physiology. Uh, we do take a molecules of life approach. I, I don't require uh, biochemistry or advanced biology courses. I do require undergraduate biology uh, and organic chemistry so that you know when we start pushing a few molecules around, you'll have a basic sense of what we're doing and what the representations are. Uh, we will do a lecture on the concepts of toxicology. This is an introductory lecture to give you a little bit of background jargon. Uh, what's chronic toxicosis versus acute toxicosis? What exactly is the relationship of biology to these uh, chemicals that are outside the organism trying to cross through these fundamental barriers? We'll do a lecture uh, early on in uh, pesticide residues. Um, and we'll use this a bit of as, as a, a case uh, study uh, just to introduce you to a subject that toxicology has an important role in in terms of developing risk assessment. Uh, pesticides, and this is not a loaded term, they are economic poisons. These are chemicals which have a lethal outcome, whether it's a, an herbicide, which has a lethal outcome hopefully in, in, in uh, weeds, or insecticides, which have lethal outcomes in insects. And so we as a society, whether we are dealing with organic chemicals, and there are organic insecticides and uh, biocides, uh, how we do some of this risk assessment in terms of the human food chain. We will deal primarily in this subject with pesticide residues in the human food chain, recognizing that there's always non-target effects, off-target effects, and environmental impacts. For this particular lecture, we're not going to deal with that. We're just going to try to, again, introduce one aspect of a potential risk assessment and some of the background history of that risk assessment. Again, this is going to help you lay a context for all of the dose response, the absorption, biotransformation of chemicals in, in the organism so that you'll understand it a little bit better. We'll then start a lecture series. And the next part of this lecture series is to uh, develop the basis for the anatomy and physiology of toxicology. So that you know the major organ systems, uh, the major breakdowns of the human body, some of the molecular changes. Uh, we start off with absorption, which is the critical crossing of a threshold between a chemical and a biological organism. We'll find out how that happens. Uh, uh, for those of you that have been unfortunate and had uh, interacted with a poisonous plant like poison ivy, you know that there is some dermal absorption there. And we'll talk about that as being involved. There's inhaled toxins. There's uh, foodborne or waterborne uh, ingested toxins. We'll talk about the next step, which is distribution and storage. What happens after you eat something that has potential uh, toxic impacts in terms of the human body? Where does it go first? What's the blood flow dynamic? Uh, why is the liver so important in terms of uh, monitoring uh, and modulating uh, potential toxicosis? And why do most toxicologists not eat liver? You'll find that out. We'll talk uh, next uh, about biotransformation and elimination. You'll see that, in fact, the human diet is uh, potentially toxic. Even as an organic or a natural food diet, nature has a tremendous arsenal 
and one of the things i want you to and know and understand in this course is that nature is not quiet. nature is not non-toxic. nature is extraordinarily toxic in fact original herbicides and pesticides were all natural extracts of plants when you think about it and we'll do a whole lecture on this in terms of ecological biochemistry nature is having quiet chemical or biochemical warfare out there and not all of us sense that but in fact there is a tremendous amount of relationship between plants and animals uh, in terms of uh, uh, their chemicals, their biochemicals, whether it be uh, venoms in a snake uh, or uh, stings of an insect or uh, plant toxins. We'll talk about those in terms of how our bodies through an evolutionary strategy manage our diet. We want to get nutrients and the molecules of life out of our diet but we want to be able to eliminate or excrete uh, those chemicals that perhaps uh, give us some level of toxicosis. We'll have a lecture on target organ toxicity. Um, you probably uh, can, can assume uh, just in your own background that uh, there, have, there are uh, particular toxicants that uh, we'll target. For instance, uh, you, you've heard the term neurotoxin, I'm sure. Uh, what does that mean when a toxin targets uh, your uh, neurological systems? We'll talk about kidney toxins and hepatotoxins or liver toxins in terms of target organ toxicity. In one lecture, we're going to take on teratogenesis, mutagenesis, and carcinogenesis. And what this is, this is toxic endpoints that involve the molecules of life, molecules of life, DNA, RNA. And the difference here is that this particular toxicosis can have a heritable change. Heritable change meaning that the intoxication of mom or dad leads to a toxic end point in the conceptus, the offspring. Okay? It seems like that's incredibly unfair, but that's the way life works. Throughout the course, we'll do several special topic lectures where we'll take uh, issues that have particular um, uh, sensitivities in terms of risk assessment or risk challenges, uh, risk communication challenges. One of these is dioxins. I call it the D word. Uh, if you're ever involved in environmental science, environmental toxicology, or management of resources, and uh, you have to deal with dioxins, uh, it will be uh, a tremendous uh, blood pressure raising experience because of the particular challenges of this. But we'll use this in terms of updating you with current risk assessment using this as a case study to look at the sources, pathways, receptors, and controls of this particular dioxins and the related uh, hydrochlorinated uh, compounds. We'll do a couple lectures on exposure and risk assessment. Um, the idea here is not to necessarily uh, give you all of the tools uh, that you might need to become good risk managers and risk assessors, but to give you an introductory part of the process, uh, how risk assessors uh, actually uh, do their job and how they actually manage our risk. Who makes the decisions in terms of uh, allowable levels of particular contaminants in food? Who makes the decisions about uh, what is uh, a, a swimmable and fishable water in terms of the Clean Water Act and pollutants that might be in that water? We'll talk about some of that and some of the jargon and processes associated with risk assessment. We'll do another case study here. We'll do two in one lecture, selenium ecotoxicology. Uh, if you're a wildlife biologist, uh, this might be quite interesting to you. 
selenium is a sulfur analog. Sulfur is extremely important in biochemistry. We'll see where this incredible natural substitution of a naturally occurring compound that might actually be accelerated in terms of its uptake in biological systems via man's activities or just natural background can have uh, ecotoxicological impacts. We'll then uh, finish that lecture off with an arsenic in drinking water. We'll talk about the global crisis, uh, yeah, especially the, the crisis in Bangladesh as a case study uh, in terms of arsenicosis. We'll then get very, very chemical with you. Um, so the beginning part of the course, people, students with a stronger uh, background in biology will feel very comfortable. Uh, the last part of the course, or the, at least the middle part, uh, the folks with more physical background will start feeling a little bit more comfortable. So we'll try and serve everything up to all different types of students. Uh, we'll go through abiotic transformation. Uh, what happens with chemicals out in the environment? Uh, so this is uh, might even be subtitled uh, environmental chemistry. Uh, we'll go through some biotic transformation. What happens in terms of uh, uh, natural uh, environmental transformations of chemicals, uh, microbial transformations, for example, or bioaccumulation of chemicals throughout wildlife species. Uh, we'll do a lecture on environmental chemodynamics. Uh, why do things happen? When you really think about it, uh, if uh, I take a, a very large lake and I've got a pipe at one end of that lake, uh, why does a pollutant that is sourced at one particular point in terms of space and time end up polluting a very large water body? Uh, the answer to that is thermodynamics. And we'll talk about the relationship of thermodynamics to environmental chemistry and the potential for environmental toxicology. There will be also a discussion of environmental transport. What happens uh, in terms of mobilization of chemicals in the environment, uh, again, driven by thermodynamic, but also by environmental forces such as precipitation, wind, uh, and any sort of uh, movement uh, of water. We will then uh, take on uh, four lectures and we'll do vignettes or case studies. Uh, the idea there is to give you an idea of some very interesting case studies that I've researched uh, over the years and brought to uh, environmental toxicology here. Some of these I've actually uh, taken out and done a uh, uh, shot my own video, uh, so apologies for that and doing some of my own interviews of individuals. Uh, I'm kind of like one of those really obnoxious news people that if I see something interesting and maybe some people in bunny suits out there, uh, and I've done this on family vacations, so my, my <laughs> family uh, puts up with me, but uh, I jump out of the car with a video camera and say, hey, what are you doing here and what are you doing? And typically people are very reasonable and respectful uh, once they learn about it that it's for, for class content. And so um, it's something that uh, hopefully gives you a, a, an eye on the world. Uh, it's not, to, again, to be comprehensive. I've tried to, in this, do a broad amount of case studies. Some of these case studies I've actually used, uh, for instance, like Chernobyl, as a way to do an introductory segment on radionuclide uh, risk assessment. Okay, So these aren't just pretty pictures and this is what happened, this is what done kind of storytelling. But, uh, for example, um, if we're going to introduce uh, a new concept, a new subject area, we use the case study as a vehicle for that as well. Um, we will then do a uh, lecture on monitoring environmental chemicals. So now that we know all of this stuff, how do we, we do a quantitative assessment of, of what's out there? It's an important part of what we're doing out there. So how do we actually design studies 
quality assurance project plans. It's many things, the practical aspects of what many people that actually have careers in this area, and it may not be a direct re responsibility of yours in your career, but you may be associated with reviewing documents or uh, reports or uh, other things. How do you assess the quality of the data? You know, how do, how do you really understand? How do you invoke simple statistics in determining the uncertainty? For example, you're a risk manager. Maybe you work for an agency. You have a report on your desk that a clean uh, a drinking water system, which is, uh, for instance, uh, the lead result uh, for that is uh, standard for drinking water uh, safety, the maximum contaminant level, or MCL, for lead in drinking water is 15 parts per billion. You get a result on your desk that says 15.01 parts per billion. What does that mean? Is that violative or not? How do you deal with that in terms of the uncertainty of the laboratory result and actually whether or not that is an actionable in terms of the litigation, uh, the uh, potential uh, 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 ramp up of a regulatory response to something that is over a maximum contaminant level? How do you interpret that number? We hope to give you a little bit of the package of resources on how you go about interpreting that kind of information. This course perhaps is a little bit different from some other courses in that for one lecture, I let the students have the throttle. Uh, by mid-course, you will all vote on the Socrates Award. Socrates Award is for the poison of the year. And what we will do here in environmental toxicology is prepare a lecture, sometimes with a guest lecture, depending upon the subject, based on the student's vote for poison of the year. Now think about it. About once every month, sometimes once every couple of weeks, I, I, I call it the toxin of the month. You'll see the media just go ape about some new risk. Sometimes it's a rehash of an old risk. Sometimes it is based on new science, peer-reviewed science, and in fact, it's not hyped. It is a clear and present danger. But sometimes the media goes a little bit nuts in terms of misrepresenting or hyperinflating the actual risk to you, me, and most people, non-occupational exposure. So it runs the whole gamut. But sometimes you find you know, these things that just light the media's uh, 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 flame in terms of uh, uh, drawing attention to some potential or real risk. What I ask students to do in their vote is to go back in the last year or so and think about the toxin or the poison of the year. Uh, I do have some specific criteria, and we'll be talking about this on uh, the discussion sections for the course in terms of uh, the relationship of, uh, of uh, the Socrates Award and how we go about doing that. The image down at the bottom of this figure is actually Socrates and why I use this. Uh, Socrates is a very outspoken uh, Greek, lived about 2,500 years ago, um, very knowledgeable, uh, one of the ancient philosophers. Uh, if you've taken philosophy courses or uh, have, have read any of his uh, dissertations, um, he was very involved in politics in Athens and perhaps uh, didn't, uh, uh, wasn't as respectful for what the government said, uh, what the local social concerns were, and he was actually sentenced to death. Had the opportunity last year to visit the prison of Socrates, but he was sentenced to death by the poison of uh, uh, the choice, uh, conium or uh, poison hem hemlock. Uh, most students here in this part of the Northwest uh, on a simple nature hike uh, as you walk around uh, saturated um, areas, uh, stream banks, uh, there's actually uh, 
poison hemlock growing wild. Uh, and uh, if you deal with animals or livestock, you know that the potential for toxicosis of animals get involved in that. But having smelled and worked with poison hemlock myself, it's very uh, harsh, alkaloid, very smelly, perhaps not particularly palatable. So in fact, uh, we'll do uh, the Poison of the Year Socrates Award. Um, it's one of the last lectures in the course. Uh, we'll try and schedule it, and we use some flexibility, especially if we have an outside lecture. I invite you on the website, we have booked and keep accessible to all students past uh, Socrates Award winners. So all those lectures, you might look down the four or five, six uh, lectures uh, we've done, for example, um, pharmaceuticals and personal care products in the environment. We've done prions. We've done uh, radioactive dispersal devices or uh, dirty bombs. We did chemical and biological warfare. We had a national class expert that come in here that came in here uh, um, uh, about five weeks after 9/11. Uh, and in fact, the week after he did his lecture here, uh, he was on Nightline in 60 Minutes, and so we were very fortunate. And so I'd encourage you, if you want to find out a little bit more about those uh, uh, subjects, to take a look at those um, lectures, which are up on our website. We'll then uh, do a, a lecture on regulating environmental chemicals. Uh, we'll talk about the relationship between government and chemistry, uh, how we have a relationship in terms of moderating and modulating uh, potential risks and potential exposures the products and processes uh, that are involved in uh, our daily lives in, in, in many cases. We'll do a special topic on endocrine disruption. Uh, this hits the uh, media now and then in terms of uh, uh, endocrine disruption, estrogenic effects. Uh, typically, uh, boy fish uh, turning into girl fish uh, is, is where you read about it most in terms of aquatic toxicology. And we'll finish up uh, with a lecture kind of looking at the future trends in environmental toxicology. Where is this course and what you've learned in the context of all of the challenges we have in navigating, negotiating man's relationship with the environment, especially with respect to chemicals? Okay, We'll try and give you some insights in the future, and that might be lay you uh, a roadmap or a little bit of a pathway in terms of where your careers might be taking you 10, 15 years down the line. Well, in terms of this course, I have some of my own expectations. One is uh, that this course deals with mortality and morbidity, uh, perhaps more so than any course that you've taken in your undergraduate careers. I do uh, expect that students have a respect for life and the unfortunate people and animals that are uh, often depicted in my case studies uh, uh, and some of the descriptions of toxicosis. Uh, it's easy for us to use humor uh, to uh, deal with our own uh, feelings of uncomfortableness, to try and navigate. Um, I'm not saying necessarily that you become sad by uh, the unfortunate uh, aspects of other people's lives or animals' lives, but that you just have a respect for it. This is a very difficult course. We deal with the dark side of life. Uh, people do die. Animals do die as a natural consequence, and sometimes through the hand of others or through the hand of mistakes. How many of you have seen you know, the, the statistics from Chernobyl? Uh, they're actually human beings. I ask you to step beyond this vain grief of the sleeping village to know and recognize there are people, brothers, mothers, fathers, daughters, involved in some of these incidents. I ask you to be tolerant. This course doesn't <coughs> excuse me, deal with the sociological aspects, but we will sometimes develop into people's attitudes. Uh, I do not ask that you necessarily agree with your fellow students, but that you have respect for their passions. 
you communicate, and the language of your communication is science. Okay? Do not use the language of passion, but do respect that we are complex individuals. We have complex backgrounds, feelings, passions, and individuals. I will not tolerate on discussion sections or anything else uh, uh, disrespect for your fellow students. I expect that you will do the hard work of learning. Again, I don't uh, think that this course uh, for most students is an easy course, although if you come well prepared, uh, this might be a particularly uh, insignificant course relative to some others. I do hope that you have patience with technical failure. We are uh, trying to juggle many things here in terms of technology. Uh, some days uh, the, the uh, lecture will be uh, taped and streamed live, but uh, because of some technical failure, we can't post it until later in the day and not the what we try and do, which is typically within one hour of presentation. But sometimes we just uh, get busy or our computer is down or our network is down. So um, if there's any questions about anything technical, contact me. And if I can't solve the problem, I can direct you to those that can. Well, let's talk a little bit about, in terms of uh, toxicology, about perceptions. Uh, perceptions uh, sometimes drive preferences. Uh, why do people, for instance, uh, choose something that is marketed as natural versus something that is, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, not natural? Um, we have to ask ourselves, are chemicals bad? Or have the representations of chemicals been taken out of context in terms of the fact that we are uh, ourselves chemicals? Um, I use the title of a, uh, of a book that uh, uh, asked this question, can you save the planet with pesticides and plastic? Uh, this was a very loaded book in terms of representing the opinions of uh, 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 one, one segment of uh, passionate believers in a certain way to do things. But um, I applaud them for constructing an argument at least. Um, the idea of the thesis was, uh, you know, listen, we've always thought that maybe we save planet, we, we are preserve nature by doing things natural. But in fact, for instance, in feeding the world's population, if we can do a higher efficiency agriculture with pesticides, uh, perhaps we don't have to cut down as many uh, acres of rainforest. Uh, if we don't need to use trees, uh, can we use uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know, that aspect of nature and, and impact on nature uh, by using plastic? And so it, at least for many students, should take us out of our own sort of perceptions, open us up to other ways to look at things with uh, simple theses like these. Now, what I'm going to do here is review some of the analyses. Bruce Ames, uh, who's the uh, professor down at uh, UC Berkeley that came up with the Ames test for mutagenesis, has been a, a social commentator on our relationship with chemicals uh, from a science point of view. But uh, he's put forth a couple of these analyses in terms of our perception of reality. But our perception is that pollution is a significant contributor to cancer and that cancer rates are soaring. But in fact, the reality is that life expectancy, if you look at the epidemiological analyses, uh, life expectancy is increasing in industrialized countries, that non-smoking cancer death rates uh, are steadily uh, declining or just uh, steady in and of themselves. You can look at this in this graphic from the American Cancer Society. This is cancer death rates. And these are not incidences of cancer, but these are the death rates for males. 
and you can see what he meant in terms of, for instance, stomach cancer going down over the past uh, uh, 70 years or so. The one that's gone up tremendously uh, is lung cancer, and this is uh, due to cigarette smoking. It's very interesting to look at this graph in terms of the dates, uh, the early part of uh, 1930s in terms of lung cancer rates. Uh, in 1960s, we started having a lot more uh, data and information, medical knowledge about the risks of cigarette smoking. Uh, and you saw for, uh, in the epidemiological data here uh, a decrease in cancer death rates in the past several decades. This is in opposition to women. Uh, in women, uh, women, it was socially unacceptable to smoke in the early part of the last century. Uh, when uh, uh, the marketers and the tobacco companies found out that this was uh, something they could uh, uh, sufficiently navigate, uh, there was an increase in cigarette smoking in women and the concomitant increase in cancer rates. But you notice this peaking actually lags men in terms of uh, cancer death rates. But uh, the upshot is that many of the cancer death rates, uh, cancer of the uterus, uh, uh, gut cancer, stomach cancers, are decreasing. Uh, this has a lot to do with food preservation, management, uh, limit of exposures, and so. And again, this is only looking at death rates, not necessarily occurrences. There are some disturbing trends with increases of cancer occurrence rates in a couple of cancers, like testicular cancer in men. A perception we have is that high-dose animal cancer risk tests tell us uh, about significant risk for humans. As it turns out, in terms of comparative toxicology, this is one of the very few ways we have any to look at these long-term generation cycles involved in carcinogenesis. It's a very awkward sort of test. It really doesn't tell us uh, all of what we need to know. In terms of uh, what it does tell us is that half of all the chemicals that we test, uh, whether they be natural or synthetic, uh, turn out to be carcinogenic. Uh, and in fact, uh, the test itself is being challenged. We high-dose these animals because we want to be able to observe cancer in two years and not 20, just in terms of the amount of time we have to do animal trials. But in fact, this uh, chronic cell wounding from these high-dose experiments, uh, it's turning out that maybe it's the cellular turnover, uh, the mitosis, and not the mutagenesis uh, that is causing the cancer, that there's just a more likely uh, carcinogenic event because we are damaging so many cells in these high-dose experiments. So we're re-looking at how we do risk assessment for cancer. Human exposures to carcinogens and other toxins are nearly all due to synthetic chemicals. This is a common perception. The reality is the amount of, for example, in pesticides, that the amount of synthetic pesticide residues in plant foods is insignificant compared to the amount of natural plant pesticides. There's about five to 10,000 natural pesticides uh, consumed. Uh, these are plant-based chemicals. Again, it's, uh, a typical plant will have 300 to 500 of these secondary chemical compounds. Uh, so even a vegetarian is exposed to naturally occurring insecticides, naturally occurring in, uh, herbicides. Those account to, for in terms of concentration, about 1,500 milligrams per day, uh, not insignificant dose. There's a perception that synthetic toxins, because they're man-made, pose some sort of greater carcinogenic uh, risk than natural toxins. Uh, most uh, scientists recognize that this is not, but this is a media or a popular representation or perception. Um, as it turns out, the proportion of natural chemicals that are carcinogenic is about the same as those as uh, synthetic chemicals, about roughly half. 
we find in terms of toxicology, and we'll do a whole lecture on dose uh, response uh, relationships, uh, that all chemicals are toxic at some dose. Uh, so even uh, your favorite uh, uh, natural ingredient uh, still has potential for toxicosis. Uh, but in terms of when you break it down, 99.9% or more of all the chemicals we actually ingest are natural. Perception is that toxicology of man-made chemicals is somehow different from natural chemicals. Uh, this is a bit of a fabrication or a mis miscommunication, an opportunity for good uh, risk communication, if you will. The reality is that humans have many general natural defenses, these biotransformation. Our liver is extremely talented in terms of uh, turning off or limiting the potential for toxicosis, again, because nature is so toxic to us. Uh, we're buffered against these toxins, and in fact, the biotransformation mechanisms, it's blind chemistry. It deals with chemicals, whether they be synthetic or whether they be natural, in very similar ways in terms of detoxifying and biotransforming uh, these chemicals. The perception is that correlation implies causation, and there is no persuasive evidence uh, from either epidemiology or toxicology that any sort of increases in pollution is a significant cause of cancer for the general population. We have a lot of other determinants uh, for cancer, uh, genetic determinants, uh, uh, behavior determinants in terms of uh, elective behaviors like cigarette smoking, uh, that, uh, and we find in terms of epidemiological study that uh, environmental exposures in terms of carcinogenesis are a very low level risk on a relative basis. There are some issues uh, beyond cancer. Uh, occupation exposure is uh, one, uh, for example, uh, it's one thing to talk about uh, a pesticide you or I might be exposed to in our diet. It's another thing for a worker, like a farm worker or somebody that works in a manufacturing plant that is exposed at occupational levels of these chemicals, uh, that is a significant potential risk because the dose is considerably higher and the dose period, uh, the dosage uh, is uh, typically significantly higher. It could be a daily exposure as opposed to a, uh, a happenstance exposure for most of us. There are other issues like endocrine disruption, whether that be in uh, natural uh, wildlife or in humans. Subclinical effects, our biotechnology uh, has allowed us to uh, essentially uh, explore the inner workings of organisms uh, down to the subcellular level. When we see a molecular uh, disturbance, is that a toxic endpoint? For example, we'll talk about dioxins where we can monitor uh, cellular ad adaptations of biochemistry, but we don't know if that is a toxic endpoint or whether just an adaptation of that cell to a, another stress. And that can be a positive adaptation in terms of a response, a positive response in terms of uh, a, uh, a potential toxic threat. Uh, we also, in terms of uh, uh, issues beyond cancer, look, have to look at developmental or second generation effects where we sometimes have a particular challenge of drawing the dose response because we're leaping generations. Uh, and the other aspect is uh, broadening that out to sensitive populations, especially with children. These are developing uh, organisms, developing neurological systems, and uh, sometimes we don't notice developmental defects until uh, decades later. And we're starting to sense now with some uh, intoxication, intoxications, low-level subclinical intoxications will have lifelong impacts. 
we are very limited in our understanding of multiple exposures. Uh, it's incredibly difficult to really understand and do risk assessment of one chemical. But in fact, what we find is that we are besieged by uh, many different chemicals, natural and synthetic. What are the additive synergistic effects uh, is a particularly challenging area of study. And then there's also just the aspect of unknown effects. Uh, there's many opportunities to develop the new science and new information about what we don't know. Uh, we're confident we know or need to know. Uh, we know what we need to know in terms of daily survival. Uh, but there are unplanned consequences, unplanned uh, life cycle assessments. Uh, and none of the scientists that invented refrigerants uh, in the 40s and 50s could have ever dreamed a scenario that these refrigerants would actually be catalytic in terms of destruction of the ozone layer. And so we just have to adopt a better precautionary approach, a life cycle assessment to what we do and how it impacts nature. Some of the issues uh, beyond human concern, there are some potentials for unintended uh, endpoints, and these can be off-target or off-site endpoints. Sometimes, uh, although it might be a widespread uh, impact, uh, uh, we can have confined organisms. Uh, if there's a small uh, pollution event in a small pond, uh, it won't be broadly toxic, but it certainly will be toxic to that confined population. There'll be species and genetic effects in terms of critical uh, intoxications in terms of the food chain uh, that may have tremendous impacts at the organismal or population level in terms of the interrelationships of uh, uh, ecology. Uh, there can be these food chain effects uh, in terms of multitrophic level where essentially if you take out uh, one level of the food chain, uh, you will have disturbances up and down the food chain. And because we are on the top of the food chain, uh, or pretty darn near the top in most circumstances, except when we go uh, swimming with sharks, perhaps, uh, that we have to worry about uh, bioconcentration. All of the students in this class uh, have uh, perhaps one part per million uh, DDT in their body fat. Yet for the majority of students uh, that uh, were born uh, in the 1980s or after, uh, you have never really been alive, especially in the U.S., when DDT was allowed to be used. This chemical compound has tremendous persistence in the environment. It circulates in the liposphere. We talk about the atmosphere and the hydrosphere. The liposphere, if you think of the cycling of fat, plants fat, animal fat, in terms of the normal decay cycle, and how food chains will impact and transport. This is why we find these chlorinated hydrocarbon compounds like DDT and PCBs in polar bear fat, even though people have never used uh, this in the Arctic. And so this is something that we uh, need to uh, address in terms of not only human concern, but uh, wildlife concern as well and impacts on nature. There is always the challenge of identifying uh, who is responsible uh, for toxicosis in the environment. Uh, what we try to, to address is uh, not necessarily points of responsibility, but pragmatic approaches of addressing the precautionaries, uh, looking at this in a very, very intelligent way, uh, designing systems to minimize risk, to manage risk, and to mitigate risk. And sometimes we have to make critical choices in terms of uh, is uh, one in a million cancer impact in this particular situation uh, affordable or reasonable? Uh, do we need to lower that down to one in 100,000 statistically? How do we balance what resources, what time, what management uh, uh, 
uh, effects that we do have in terms of our particular societies. We hope uh, uh, to make things clearer, although that's a particular challenge, like the set of uh, conflicting road signs, keep right, uh, uh, in the, uh, uh, and in fact, uh, turning left. Um, uh, there is no set path, uh, path set of answers uh, uh, in terms of risk and risk assessment. We do the best job we can with available knowledge. We try to build up the resources of knowledge uh, in toxicology so we better understand. We do make mistakes, although we have had uh, many successes. One success we can go back in terms of how science has intervened in risk assessment and environmental toxicology is uh, the abatement of the destruction of the ozone layer through a banning of chlorinated fluorohydrocarbons. Uh, it's now estimated that it's going to take until 2065 for the ozone layer to heal itself, but in fact we as a society came together and I think that gives us hope that uh, when a problem has a preponderance of evidence to support uh, the science, uh, the interaction nature of those chemicals uh, that we as a civilization in terms of the world's population can come together to make things better. I like to end this uh, looking at uh, the natural carcinogens in coffee. We go back to the uh, elective risk assessments that we all do. Um, this is a list of 20 or so uh, natural carcinogens uh, in coffee. You don't hear coffee necessarily being represented as carcinogenic. Um, what I hope to do is give you a basis of understanding of how risk assessments are done, how to pull out available information that is involved in managing not only our personal risk but societal risk in terms of exposure to chemicals and the important relationship that we have with the natural and also the synthetic world, the man-made constructs that we have that sometimes make our lives safer and easier, but sometimes make them more complex and potentially toxic. Uh, we deal with, in nature and in synthetic chemistry, uh, some chemicals that can have significant impacts in terms of potential toxicosis. Uh, hopefully everybody has examined this list by now and can identify the one chemical that we actually choose in our coffee, uh, caffeine, caffeic acid. Uh, that's why many students uh, will drink a cup of coffee to give them the brightness and alertness that all students uh, that take this class will have. Uh, it's my choice. Probably the most toxic thing in this uh, uh, picture is the donuts and not necessarily the coffee, at least I hope so. Uh, this is the caffeine molecule. This is an alkaloid. It's a naturally occurring alkaloid. And part of what we're going to do in this class is try to understand not only synthetic chemistry, but natural chemistry. Why do alkaloids exist in plants? What is the, the coffee bean doing producing such a chemical? I don't think anybody sat down and designed the coffee bean to be able to give you your morning uh, java jump. Uh, I think there are other relationships, and we'll do a whole lecture on ecological biochemistry to try and decipher this relationship that we have with the natural world. Well, that gives you uh, uh, perhaps a brief introduction to the course and the whole background concepts of environmental toxicology. I do invite students to contact me, uh, download the syllabus so that you understand the responsibilities of students in this course, the workload that's associated with it. Exercise all of the different links, uh, uh, whether it be WebCT or Etox Live, as I call it, because of the live stream that's accessible. Uh, let me know anything that you have in terms of concerns about the course, if you have some challenges, technical, or just in terms of your own background. 
The other thing is uh, I'm going to require um, that all students uh, go onto the course website in WebCT eTalks Live in terms of discussion area and post a little bit of background information about yourself, why you're taking this course, and perhaps what you did on your summer holiday so that you can kind of uh, get used to uh, interacting in this new uh, electronic or digital medium. Next time what we're going to do is uh, we're going to explore some of the, the root uh, motivations in terms of uh, environmental history. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Rachel Carson and Silent Spring. Uh, again, just as an introductory preface to all of environmental toxicology, uh, Rachel Carson, a marine biologist for the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, in the 1960s, who uh, had a particular skill uh, at uh, interpreting science uh, in the public arena, uh, essentially awakening a good part of uh, at least uh, the U.S. population to some of the risks associated with some of the practices in the 1950s and early 60s uh, that uh, perhaps were going unheeded or unnoticed in the general population. It, uh, at least uh, her uh, efforts gave us uh, a wiser uh, context for our relationship with our environment. We need to be a little bit more precautionary in our approach to man's in 